Take a Bible and open it this morning to a Second Samuel chapter 1 in the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. Second Samuel chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, how about borrowing the one we have for you right there on the back of the seat in front of you? We're going to be on page 214, page 214 in our copy, or Second Samuel chapter 1 in your copy. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The Thriller in Manila. I am the greatest. Well, if you know anything about the sports world at all, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, we knew him earlier as Cassius Clay in his career. Later, we all know him today as Muhammad Ali. But you know, Muhammad Ali is a very sick man today. He has Parkinson's disease and can barely walk. And yet in 1996, he was accorded the tremendous privilege of lighting the Olympic cauldron at the games there in Atlanta. Everywhere he goes now, people treat him with kindness, with compassion because of his illness. Everyone that is except Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier, who won the gold medal in the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, had three epic battles with Muhammad Ali and lost two out of the three. But far more serious in Frazier's mind than what happened in the ring is what Muhammad Ali did to him out the, outside the wing, the, uh, ring, the way he demeaned him. He called him a gorilla. Ali said that Frazier was a pawn of the white establishment. Ali called him an Uncle Tom. Ali insinuated that he was a disgrace to his race. And a quarter of a century later, the hate and the resentment that Frazier feels for Ali is still smoldering. There was an article in USA Today where it noted that he publicly did, Frazier publicly opposed Ali lighting the Olympic cauldron, saying that Ali was a draft dodger and a bad American. The article went on to say that, uh, that Frazier was said to the reporter, I get on my knees and I pray for Ali every day. And when the reporter asked him, well, what do you pray for Muhammad Ali? He said, I pray for God to handicap him. USA Today went on to say Frazier's bitterness towards his arch rival has never wavered over the years. And the article closes with a quote from Joe Frazier. He said, a lot of people want me to feel sorry for Ali now that he's sick. Why should I? All the guys he beat up and looked down on, he didn't feel sorry for us, so why should I feel sorry for him? Folks, is this how God wants us as Christians to treat our enemies? Or does God have a different way, a higher way, a better way for us to respond to our enemies? This is what we want to talk about today. Does God want us to be like Joe Frazier, or has God got a better plan? We're going to use a life, uh, an, uh, an incident rather, out of the life of King David to set the stage for us. So let's look here right in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Remember the background, there's been a horrendous battle between the army of the Philistines and the army of Israel, and the army of Israel lost. And Saul was killed along with his three sons, one of whom was Jonathan. David was nowhere near the battle. He was three days away in Ziklag. He wasn't even close. And so now we're going to watch as he finds out the news of how the battle went. Look at verse 2. On the third day, a man arrived at Saul's camp with his, uh, I'm sorry, arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. And David asked him, where have you come from? He said, I've come from the battlefront. And David said, well, tell me, how's it going up there? The man said, verse 4, the men of Israel fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David said, how do you know for sure that's true? Verse 6, 
The man said, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders of the Philistines almost upon him. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? Verse 8, uh, verse 9 rather. And then he said to me, stand over me and kill me, for I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So, verse 10, I stood over him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen on his sword like that, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arm and I have brought them here to you, David. Here they are as proof that Saul is dead. Now, did this man really kill Saul? Because in the last chapter of, of 1 Samuel, it says Saul fell on his own sword and killed himself. Is there an inconsistency in the Bible here? No. It is indeed possible that Saul fell on his sword and was only half dead when the man found him and that the man is telling the truth and he really did finish him off. It's also entirely possible, and most commentators think the real truth is, that when this man fought, found Saul, he was dead. And the man took his crown, the man took his bracelet, and made up the rest of the story, figuring that David would be so excited that Saul was dead, that he would reward the man who did it. And this man was just kind of, well, in a sense, he was kissing up, hoping to get an, a reward from David. What, what happened to the guy? Well, look with me at verse 14. And David asked the man, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called on one of his men and said, go and strike this man down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David says to this guy, hey, look, pal, I had two chances to kill Saul and I didn't do it. And now you come here and tell me you killed him. Unacceptable. And he killed this guy. Remember, David didn't, there was no CNN reporting from the front. David did not really know what was going on up there. He assumed the man was telling him the truth, whether the man was or not. And David said, that's unacceptable. And he killed him. Then David went on. If you look with me at verse 17, it says, David took up a lament for Saul and his son, Jonathan. David, in his grief, composed a eulogy for, for Saul and Jonathan. And in this eulogy, uh, he has some very kind words for his friend Jonathan, which we would all expect. Look at verse 25. He says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. David realized that you just don't replace somebody like Jonathan. Jonathan was the kind of a friend that comes along once in a lifetime. And he, he, he was a, they were soulmates, they were amigos. It's a shame that some people have looked at these verses and have said that in these verses we see a veiled reference to homosexual activity between David and Jonathan. Because, folks, the Bible never tells us there was homosexual activity between these two men. And the Bible is perfectly capable of telling us that if it was happening. The Bible tells us there was homosexuality occurring in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible tells us about homosexuality in the book of Judges, in the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not that the Bible can't talk about it if it's happening, but the Bible doesn't talk about it because it wasn't happening. These were two godly men who were the best of friends, friends like two men uh, are, with an, one man is with another man once in his life. And, and David is commemorating the loss of this wonderful friend he had in this eulogy for Jonathan. 
Now, that's as far as I want us to go right now before we ask the most important question. And you know what the most important question is. What's the most important question? So what? So what? Right. Say, Lon, this is a nice story. feel bad for Jonathan. But you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, let's see if it does. I wonder what's the dumbest thing you've ever done to hurt yourself. Not somebody else has done to hurt you, but to injure yourself. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done to injure yourself? Well, I'll tell you what wins for me. Uh, a few years ago, before my daughter Jill was born, Brenda, uh, used to, uh, one of her hobbies was working with stained glass. And she was working one evening on a stained glass lamp back in the workbench area in our house. And I was sitting out watching Monday Night Football. So all was well with the world. I mean, this was a wonderful evening happening here. And she came out to me and she said, you know, I've got this big piece of glass, Lon, that I can't break myself. It's just too, I'm not strong enough to break it. Would you come back and break it for me? And I got up out the chair and I said to her, move aside, woman. Let a man show you how to do this. I really said that. So you know this is going to end bad. So I walked back there and sure enough, this piece of glass, and I pushed on it a little bit and I pushed on a little bit. It, it was a difficult, you know, you make a little etching and then you snap it right along the etching. So I got it over on the edge of the table and I got all my weight behind it and I went, yeah, and I broke it. Well, I had so much pressure on it that the top piece slid and sliced off the top of my finger, my little finger, like London broil just went and sliced off about a two inch slice off the top of my finger, just peeled it right back. So you could see the bones and the tendons and everything. Really. And I went, oh, Brenda, I think we need to go to the hospital. So I wrapped it in a towel. Blood was everywhere. And it was a very quiet ride on the way to the hospital. Very quiet. Well, if you want to, you can come up afterwards. I'll show you the scar. I've still got a big old scar. We've had a bunch of people this morning come up to see it. So you can come up and see it. I'd be happy to show it to you. But you know, when you do something really dumb like that to yourself, you don't have anybody to blame. Who are you going to blame but yourself? But how about when somebody else does something to you, to hurt you, and it's not accidental, and it's not unintentional, and it's not unplanned, but they do it deliberately, they do it on purpose, they do it with malice and with forethought, just like Saul was doing to David. How does God want us as Christians to respond to somebody like that, to an enemy like that? Well, you know what's really interesting to me as I read this eulogy is that it doesn't surprise me in his eulogy that David has some very positive things to say about Jonathan. What surprises me is he has some very nice things to say about Saul. Look what he says, verse 23. Verse 23, David says, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And now he turns his attention just to Saul. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, he says, who clothed you in scarlet and finery. He said, hey, Saul did some good things. Let's appreciate the good things the man did. Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. And let's mourn for this man who died such a tragic death. You see, David had every reason to hate Saul, the way Joe Frazier hates Muhammad Ali. Every reason. But David had chosen a different road. He had chosen a higher road, the road that God wanted him to choose. A road of refusing to let bitterness and hatred take over his heart, but instead to focus on Saul's good points. And so much so that when Saul died, he felt a genuine sense of loss and a genuine sense of pain when Saul was gone. You said, Lon, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
you got to get real here, son. Don't you understand what he was doing? After all the pain that this man Saul caused him, he's just pasting it on, Lon. He's just saying what you're supposed to say in a eulogy. He's just doing it for the cameras. He knows as the next king that he's better to say something nice about Saul. This is all just smoke and mirrors. Don't you understand that? Well, I'm sorry, folks, but I don't believe that. I believe that David had risen above the natural response that, that most people would have to return hatred and resentment towards Saul. And I believe that in his heart, he felt and believed the things that he said here, that there was a genuine affection in his heart for this man Saul and a genuine concern. And I believe that David was heartbroken to see Saul's life end the way that it did. You say, well, Lon, if that's true, that's really true, then how in the world, you tell me, did David achieve this? I mean, how could David love somebody and care about somebody who did to him what Saul did, who hated him the way Saul did, who, who persecuted him the way Saul did, who abused him the way Saul did? Where in the world did David get the power and the ability to really care for this man after all this man did to him? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And we want to answer that because there is an answer. I believe that David got the freedom and the power and the capacity to love and care for his enemy the way he did from one simple place. A simple place called forgiveness. Forgiveness. I believe that in his heart, David had forgiven Saul for all that he had done to him. And you know, folks, you cannot love somebody till you've forgiven them. You can't really care for somebody until you've forgiven them. And to see David extend this kind of care for Saul means he had forgiven the man in his heart. And this is the plan that God has for you and me. We talked about the higher road. Does God have the Joe Frazier plan for you and me? No. He has David's plan for you and me. I want you to turn into the New Testament with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's page 684 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5. Page 684, and watch Jesus outline this for us. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse uh, 43 when you get there. Page 684, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it was said, Jesus said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is our world system. This is human logic. Hey, somebody does something good to you, you do something good to them. Somebody does something bad to you, you hate them back in return. I love one of my favorite bumper stickers is the one that says, You touch my car, I break your face. I love that bumper sticker. That's the human spirit on display for us. Now, look at verse 44. But Jesus said, I tell you, no, that's not what I want for you. I want you to love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons, that you may be little copies of your Father who is, who's in heaven. And how do you love an enemy? How do you reach that capacity in your life? You do it through forgiveness, friends. Let me show you one other passage. Colossians chapter 3. The letter that Paul wrote the church of Colossae. It's page 834 if you're using our copy of the Bible. I wonder if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Page 834. And look what, look what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 13. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Watch. Forgive other people as the Lord forgave you. 
Forgiveness is the secret, my friends, as to how you can love an enemy, how you can care for an enemy. You say, well, Lon, i got some questions about this. Well, that's wonderful. Go ahead and ask them. Say, my first question is this. I don't know if you're talking about the same kind of forgiveness I'm talking about, Lon, when we're talking about forgiving an enemy. I mean, what exactly do you mean? Define forgiveness for us the way the Bible uses it. Okay, I'd love to. Forgiveness, friends, is a way of responding to hurt. Forgiveness is something we choose to do. It is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision, uh, an act of our will, a choice that we make. And it is a choice, you know, say, to do what? Well, it is a choice in our heart to let the offending party off the hook. It is a decision in our heart to absolve that uh, offending party in our spirit, in our heart, to dig a six-foot grave, put what they did in that grave, cover it up with dirt in our heart, put a tombstone on top of it, and declare it dead and buried in ancient history forever. And forgiveness means that we make up our mind to wipe the slate clean, we make up our mind to burn the bill of particulars that we have against that person, and we make up our mind to catch permanent amnesia when it comes to what they did to us and what they may be continuing to do to us. I had a lady come up after one of the services and say, well, what if, I, what if every time I think I've done it, it comes back? I say, you do the same thing that you do when a flood washes things out of a grave. You dig a new grave and put them back in. And you keep on putting them back in until eventually they don't come out anymore. I did a wedding yesterday and I, in the charge that I gave this young couple, I said to them, you know, the single greatest skill that you two will need to develop if you're going to last 50 years is the skill of forgiveness. Because married people hurt each other. Married people wound each other. Sometimes they even do it on purpose. And I know standing here all googly-eyed looking at each other, you don't believe that you'll ever do this to one another. But trust me, I'm the veteran of 24 years in the trenches, and I know it will happen. And if you're going to make it as a couple, the single greatest skill you need is the skill to forgive. To wipe the slate clean. Friends, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about this is if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is the offer God's making to you. God is offering to catch permanent amnesia when it comes to your sins. God is offering to burn the bill of particulars that He as a, as a holy God has against you and me as sinners. God is offering to wipe the slate completely clean forever between us and Him. He's offering to forgive us. If we're willing to trust what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us to pay for our sins. This is the greatest offer ever made in the history of the world. And if you're here and you've not availed yourself of this offer, I'd like to say to you, what is keeping you? What is keeping you? What better offer could anybody make to you than Almighty God is making? And I hope you'll avail yourself of it. It's the best offer going in the universe. Well, Lon, I got another question. Are you saying that when I forgive somebody, that this means that what they did to me doesn't matter anymore? That what they did to me wasn't important? Uh, is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that, friends. Forgiveness says it was not okay then. You hurt me. You damaged me. You wounded me deeply. It was not okay what you did to me then. But it's okay now. It's okay now. God has removed the poison from the wound. The gangrene is gone. He's put scar tissue over the wound. 
and now it doesn't hurt to touch it anymore. It wasn't okay then, but it's okay now. And friends, this is supernatural healing that God does in our hearts when we make the choice to forgive people who've hurt us. You say, well, how does God do this, Law? And what's the mechanics? I don't have a clue. But I'm just telling you, I know it works because it worked with me and my Jewish mother. And there is no greater challenge in the world than forgiving a Jewish mother. Believe me, I know. They don't come any bigger than that. And God was able to do that in my life once I made the decision I wanted to forgive this woman. God healed all that hurt and he'll do it for you. See, so often, my friends, we say to God, God, you show me and then I'll believe and obey. And God says, no, 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 that's not the deal. The deal is you believe and obey and then I'll show you. We often say, God, you take all the poison out of this and then I'll forgive them. God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You make the choice to step out and obey me and forgive them. And when you do that, then I'll come along and I'll take the poison out the wound. Many of us here may be sitting and saying about somebody, well, when God heals me, I'll forgive them. No, friend, you got it backwards. God wants you to forgive them and then God will heal that hurt. You say, well, Lon, I got one more question. Okay, what's that? My last question is, why should I? I mean, why should I forgive? Well, I got three quick reasons. Number one, because God commands us to as Christians. Look what it says here in Colossians 3, verse 13. It says, forgive. That is a command. That is not a suggestion. God's not saying, hey, let me, let me give you what might be a good idea. Why don't you go home and pray about it and see if you agree? No. God is not asking us to look at this as a nice option that we ought to consider. No. God commands us, forgive. You say, Balan, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Okay, well then, may I go to my second reason why you should forgive them? It says right here, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Hey, if you're a Christian, when Jesus Christ came into your life and forgave you, did you deserve to be forgiven? I don't think so. Well, if you didn't deserve to be forgiven and God forgave you, then as Jesus said, freely you have received... Freely give. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And yes, you're perfectly right. They are not deserving to be forgiven. But neither were you and I. And we're to forgive them as the Lord forgave us. The last reason why you should forgive is because if you don't, it'll mess your life up. It'll screw your life up. Friends, bitterness and anger and hatred like Joe Frazier feels for Muhammad Ali will do more to ruin a life than any other single force on the face of the earth. Bitterness and hatred like that is a far greater threat to your health and your well-being than every virus, every bacteria, and every carcinogenic agent in this world. And many of us are in prison today And the bars are hatred and the bars are animosity and the bars are the desire for revenge against people who've hurt us. And the people we're hurting the worst is us. We're the ones in prison and God wants to liberate us and make us free to love and free to live. And that's why God calls us to a lifestyle of forgiveness. You say, well, Lon, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know if I can I mean, I've been hurt so bad, I don't know if I can. One final thought. It says in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he was mistreated, he didn't make any threats. In fact, when he was hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. 
because they don't realize what they're doing. Where did Jesus get the capacity to forgive people who were mistreating him as the Holy Son of God? Like that? Where did he get it? Well, now listen. It says in 1 Peter, instead of retaliating, he kept on entrusting himself to God, who he knew would judge righteously. Do you hear that? Where did Jesus get the capacity? He got it because of his view of God. He had a big view of God. He had a big understanding of who God was. He knew God was all-knowing, that God knew everything that was going on. He knew God was all-powerful, that God could take care of paying anybody back anything that deserved it. He knew that God was all-wise, and God knew exactly when to pay people back, exactly how to pay people back, and that Jesus didn't have to lift one finger to help him. And it was the size of his God that gave him the capacity to forgive. He was able to take these people who had hurt him and entrust them, deliver them into the hands of this huge God and take his hands off and say, God, as all-knowing and all-seeing and all-wise and all-powerful as you are, you don't need my help. You can take care of what these people did to me and you will do it righteously. I believe, my friends, the bigger your God is a Christian, the more forgiving and forgetting a person you'll be. And the smaller your God as a Christian, the more retaliatory and vindictive you will be. Because you'll take matters in your own hands. You say, well, Lon, where do I go to get a big God like this? Where do I go to develop this kind of a view of God? Well, it's real simple. You go right here. Right into the Word of God. The Word of God is where God puts Himself on display. The Word of God is where God exhibits Himself for you and for me to see and to learn who He is and the size and the power and the awesomeness of what He is. And if you want the size of your God to grow, then get into the Word of God. Immerse yourself and saturate your life with the Word of God. And your understanding of God will enlarge. And I promise you, as your understanding of who God is gets bigger, your capacity to entrust people into the hands of that God and forgive them will get bigger too. There's a wonderful story told about Abraham Lincoln in Carl Sandburg's biography. He tells about a reception happening at the White House in 1864. And there was an elderly lady there who happened to overhear Abraham Lincoln making a positive comment about the Confederates. And the woman became indignant, almost to the point of becoming insulting. And she went up to the president and she said to him in very strong language, she said, how dare you speak kindly of the enemy? Your job as president, she said to him, is to destroy the enemies of this republic. And Lincoln very slowly turned and looked right into this woman's eyes and he said to her, Madam, he said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? What a wonderful thought. And you know, God's realistic enough to know that you may never be able to go to an enemy that you have here on the earth and in reality turn them into a friend. That may not happen. But folks, God knows that in our hearts we can turn every enemy into a friend by forgiving them. We can do that. That's what David had done with Saul. And that's what God wants you to do with your enemies if you're a Christian. If you have a Saul in your life, my friend... The step to being able to love this person is to forgive this person. And God wants you to do that because not only will that enable you to obey God, but it will liberate you 
from the prison of bitterness and hatred that will destroy your life. Let's pray together, shall we? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to take just a moment to give you a chance to do business with God if you need to. I'll bet there are some of us here who have enemies in school, at the workplace, in our neighborhood, in our families. People just like Saul. And maybe some of us have been cherishing bitterness and resentment and hatred towards them for years. I want you this morning, if you're ready, to take the opportunity God's offering to get free. To get liberated. I want you to make the choice to forgive them this morning. And to entrust them into a God, the hands of a God who will and can take care of judging them righteously. If you need to do that, let's give you some time to do it right now. know that in the Christian life, there are some things that are not that all that difficult to do. Going to church, singing in a choir, putting some money in an offering plate, teaching Sunday school. These are not hard things to do. But then there are some things you call us to do that are very difficult. And I would suppose that forgiving people who have hurt us deeply may be possibly the most difficult of all. Thank you for speaking to us about this today. Thank you for telling us about the higher road that you want us to take. Thank you for David's example. And Father, I pray that you would take those of us who are struggling with this, who can identify with Joe Frazier, that Lord, you would liberate us today. And that you would give every one of us here who are Christians a whole different way of looking at our enemies, a whole different plan for how we deal with them. Maybe we can't turn them into our friends in reality, but we can sure turn them into our friends in our hearts. And I pray that following what we've talked about here today, that you would give us the capacity as we seek to obey you to do that. God, do a great work in our hearts because we were here and we heard the word of God today. And thank you for freeing some people who already made that choice in these quiet moments. Lord Jesus, give them a release and a liberty that they haven't known in years. And honor what they've done, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.